Wish we could turn back time To the good old days When the mama sang us to sleep But now we're stressed out Wish we could turn back time Hello there, ladies and gentlemen, my friends, dear all. We've arrived at it, and welcome to it, the final episode of the first season of Unmasking the Revolution. How do I say? It's about as full of scholarly research as is physically possible. It's about as full of genuine revelations about the so-called French Revolution that are mentally endurable. And throughout, it's filled with the unflinching resolve that I hope you've come to expect from the Flirtily Club and his podcast, Unmasking the Revolution. Monsieur is with us again today, and thanks be to God for that. Before I introduce him, though, I'd like to refer you to our website. It's a place for community, a place for comfort, and a place for critical thought. You'll find it at www.fleur. D-E-L-Y-S hyphen club dot org. That's the fleur de hyphen club dot org. And we welcome you to it when you arrive. Before we formally begin the second season, please God, of the program, and may there be many more to come, although you can rest assured we'll be working on unmasking of this horrible nightmarish revolution not really a revolution, any more than a liquor store robbery is a liberation. We're going to be working on it, but we won't be on the air. So I would invite you to join us again on September 1st, when we have a very special episode for you. It's going to be rated mature, and it's going to be an early taste of Halloween. When we were discussing uh, Cagliostro and Mesmer, the fact of the matter is, there is so much dark material in their lives. And there is so much of it that is frankly obscene, but I think that you have a right to know about. And it will air on September 1st to give you an early taste of Halloween. There's going to be many tricks we learn about, few treats we get, but hopefully we'll learn how to save yourselves and your families. You can also rest assured that beginning in mid-September, regularly scheduled podcast episodes of season two of Unmasking the Revolution will debut. And now speaking of something that is tricky and spooky and rarely gives honest people a treat, I would like to turn our attention once again to that horrible crime, so colloquially called a revolution. And I would like to welcome Monsieur back to the program, our dear friend and colleague, and to my certain knowledge, he's going to begin, are you not, sir, with a aspect of the so-called revolution that isn't discussed hardly at all, but is a key element, especially as we're discussing the uh, St. Justice Day Massacre or the uh, storming of the Bastille, so-called, and how it fits into the entirety of the revolution. So, sir, what do you have to start us off with today? 
the stock exchange. Now, some historians have argued that the, revolu the revolution was really funded by the, by the capitalists, you see. It may be strange as an argument, but it, I think it has some value. Well, not at all. I don't think it's strange because if you look at the Freemasons, that is their, that is their character. The Freemasons essentially, as far as I can deduce, having grown out of the medieval guild system in secret to make more profits, they're essentially, they're, they are bourgeois. That is what the Freemason is. He is a bourgeoisie. Um, he is the businessman below the aristocracy who wants to control things and make more profits, as far as I can tell. Um, Yes. Yeah. So it's quite logical, you're right. Yeah. So what happened is that uh, during that period where the king decided to dismiss Necker, <clears throat> people had, had, had some inklings of that. Some people like the Duke of Orleans knew about it and people started being worried because they thought, what about my money? The main concern of all these capitalists was that the state would always endorse all the paper money, you know, the credit and all that. Yeah, so credit. Yes. Here we go. This is coming. Yeah, play. yeah. The, again, you see, the, there was the one establishment, one bank establishment, La Banque d'Escompte, which played a very important role because uh, it was uh, it was quoted on the stock exchange, of course, and for some time, because of all the riots that had taken place, the value of the shares in that particular bank, which was the main, one, one of the main um, companies listed on the stock yes. exchange, uh, you had also water companies and you had uh, you know, uh, utilities that were uh, traded, but yes. that one uh, was going down, and that was really worrying for all those who had been uh, buying that paper. In well, of course, speculators. Um, if I may hold you up one second, sir, I, I'd like to um, just just make a not make a point, but I'd like to illustrate that nowadays, looking at this, people wouldn't understand it. But during this time throughout the world, except in England, which had been ahead in this revolutionary model, there was no such thing as a national bank. There were no. Uh, there was no Bank of France or Bank of the United States. There was a Bank of England, though, no surprise there. So that is to say that currency was not managed. The supply of currency was not managed by a central government. It was subsidiary. It was subsidiarily um, allowed to the local mints, to the local provinces, to exactly. yes. mint the coins. And this is one of the reasons I am convinced that the Masons, as you point out, launched the revolution, was not only to create a central bank, therefore enshrine their total control of the money system, but was because the king was preventing their total control over the economy and people's lives. That's an excellent point, yes. And by the way, the mints, there were plenty of local mints in, in France at the time during Louis XVI's reign. There must have been like 20 mints, you know, in the major cities, uh, you would have a mint like in Bordeaux or in Toulouse or uh, in Rennes. Um, you, you got mints all over the place, actually. Uh, some, some mints were very important, others were not. And uh, it was uh, fluctuating. Like, for example, if you take the, the mints at the Pyrenean border with Spain, that was a very important one. Like yes, both, it's... Because they were bringing in a lot of silver from Spain. And it could be, it would be, uh, of course, uh, turned into accused uh, uh, afterwards, you see. So mints yes. were very important. It was the, actually, it was the Livre Tournois, was it, that it was supposed yes, to be? Yes, absolutely, Livre yeah. Tournois. And the, you're absolutely right in the sense that 
this is subsidiarity as well, you yes. know. And uh, of course, afterwards, you, after the French Revolution, so you got thanks to people like Clavier and Pancho, who were yes. from Geneva. Uh, these were bankers like uh, Necker as well. They instituted the French bank. And, uh, and with all the problems, we've had ever since. But exactly. um, so this time, right in the 1780s that we're discussing, uh, money currency was in specie. It was in gold or silver. And because wow. currency is real, it's in your hand, it's tangible wealth, you can only create very limited amounts of credit. Of course, once you wipe away any kind of reality, get rid of any kind of real currency and come up with just numbers on a piece of paper, well, then you can do anything you'd like, can't you? That's what happened during the French Revolution, but of course it all started in England. You see, experiment in, uh, which was, uh, or even that, I don't know, but uh, in France, the law experiment was deeply resented. And that's why we... Uh, well, naturally presented, of course, and uh, but then uh, with the uh, uh, with the bankruptcy, which was looming so large in France, they were um, they were inspired by the Genevan bankers to create, uh, particularly with Clavier, to create the Assignat. And as I've told you previously, the Assignat were also listed, and the value of the Assignat kept falling down. It it lost about eighty percent of its value. And who was Clavier doing at the moment, at, at that time, where he had instituted that particular form of currency, and himself, he was faking the notes. Oh, he, had a print, he, had, he was printed, he was printing uh, fake banknotes, yeah. you know, bank uh, assignat. Yes. Isn't that being crooked? It's, uh, awesome. it's, it's really awesome. crooked. They, they, they were a bunch of crooks, I'm sorry yeah. to say. Oh, they were, they were. They were, I get, there's no word I could use on our program, it being a family-friendly program that I could use to describe these men. But I will say that the more I learn about this, the more I, I believe that those, those conjectures, that the, something diabolical was done by the East India Company um, when they went there. Because before then, when they came back, rather, from, the, from India, these principal lights of theirs, dark lights like Bentham, etc., they had a very clear agenda with creating um, artificial currency with controlling people with diabolism. There was something to that story that they engaged. I think in instead of very evil, evil ceremonies when they first went to this uh, to India. Um, I, I digress. But uh, no, no, we're talking. No, I about think it would be very good if you could possibly uh, bring us more information. It might about be very good, but I may not be around too much longer <laughs> if I try. To. <laughs> yes, if you go to if we <laughs> delve too much into these things, yes. we may. Put ourselves in danger yes. but anyway uh, coming back to my little story about the, 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 the there were two things going on at the time there was Necker who had been dismissed and that created great fear of a bankruptcy because people thought okay the king has dismissed this uh, finance finance minister probably the next move is going to be the is going to declare bankruptcy which in fact he should have done by the way because bankruptcies happened very often in the french royal system in and it purged it purged the system if yes. i may say it was but, a practice throughout all of europe throughout the known world uh, but the thing is when when louis uh, ascended the throne he was he, he had promised he was told to promise not to uh, go into any bankruptcies and he kept his promise but he should have uh, declared bankruptcy and that might have 
changed everything, really. So the problem is that people and capitalists, I don't know whether we should call them capitalists, but this is the word which they seem to use at yes. the time, uh, were very much afraid that they would be losing their paper money, you know, value, like uh, all these shares that were sta- uh, traded on the stock exchange of the time. Of course, the stock exchange of the time had nothing to do with what we know today. It was not as complicated, but Honestly, if you look at uh, some diaries like the one written by Clavier, I know it's a little bit uh, intricate, but uh, if you manage to to get hold of what he wrote, you will see that they were already thinking in very elaborate, sophisticated bank terms and uh, they they knew plenty of things you know and they were trading a, a little bit like we are trading today with you know they had um, um, buying on margin and tools like this. Uh, Exactly. This is what I was thinking of, and you know, and uh, what it, hedging. They were hedging their yeah. bets as well. Hedge so, funds. Uh, yes, hedge funds already at the time. You know, it all started from then, and, and so it, it didn't come out of whole cloth. That's that's why we know there's a conspiracy because all of a sudden, all these people in different places started saying the same thing out of nowhere, apparently straight out of the blue. Where did hedge comes hedge funds come from in 1785? I mean, it's, it's incredible, is it yeah. not? Yes, they already were hedging. They were hedging their bets. So anyway, uh, what happened is that these capitalists got really worried they would be lo- losing their money. So as they had plenty of money, and through that I mean the banks, some of yeah. the banks. So they were very happy to give some money away to some ruffians who would uh, really do a terrible harm to the regime to bringing to bring it back to its senses, you know what I mean? Yes. So they, want, they wanted to uh, frighten and threaten the king and his uh, government, and the government instituted only lasted five, five days. So that's a, a very important prelude to the uh, Bastille event. Indeed, and, and a they, testament to the power, I'm not saying abuser, but that's a testament to the power of the bankers. And I think that we see here the clearest incarnation of credit. Credit is, as I've said before, and I'm not getting on my soapbox here, but credit is not a tool just to help people buy a house. That's that's a, a tertiary, forgotten, almost a vestigial, you might say, part of it. Credit, mm-hmm. in essence, is designed to destroy some classes and create others. That's simply what it's there for. It's an artificial weapon created by people for destruction and creation. Well, absolutely, and you can control people through credit. Yes. Because if you do not pay back, you may go to prison, you see, yes. and you you may be um, you, they can take your house away, you know, or they so, can use it as a reward. They can give you free things out of nothing. So what happened is that during the National Assembly uh, meetings, uh, they decided to make sure that there wouldn't be a bankruptcy. National Assembly issued some um, some edicts saying that there wouldn't be a bankruptcy and that the honor of the debts would always be uh, maintained and that all the interest on the debt would also be maintained. And that's why afterwards uh, uh, a guy named Rivarol, who was a a royalist and he was also a journalist or a pamphleteer, I don't know exactly, but Rivarol is a very famous name in French history. And he he said that something like 60,000 capitalists decided on the fate of the French Revolution. And I think it has some truth.
if we consider the events of La Bastille, we see that all of a sudden the populists, the rioters, the mob were able to get uh, easily some weapons, like 28,000 we 28, weapons at in the Invalide, in the Invalide being a place where they were, the Invalide is, uh, was, was some form of a hospice, you know, a place where, which is very well known, it was erected by Louis XIV uh, as a hospital for the those who had been crippled during the war. Yeah. So there you had some ammunitions and mainly you had some rifles. So the populace was easily able to get hold of these weapons, but then just after the, revol the, the 14th of July, the bourgeoisie decided to take back all the weapons and you know what they did they gave money i think it must have been something like 40 sol sol being the currency you know it was a, a copper copper currency yes. so for 40 sol you would get you would be uh, if you returned your rifle you would given that sum of money and as these ruffians had no money they were very pleased to bring it back so the bourgeoisie on the one hand decided to arm, to arm you know what i mean to yes. arm the ruffians and then once the Bastille has been stormed they decided to take it to take all the weapons back you see oh hence the creation of the Garde Nationale that's something else as well yes you're right you see and uh, well that's a very important that's a, that's a, what shall I say this is a, a momentous uh, event because uh, but we'll see it when we look chronologically at these events because on the 13th of July in particular the Hotel de Ville which is which is the city hall you know they decided two very important things they decided to create the milice bourgeoise with 48 uh, which was a militia composed yes. of uh, bourgeois people and they wanted to have 48,000 people and they enlisted 48,000 people in that particular militia but they needed some guns you see and but that's very important in the sense that they are there they are defying the ex executive power of the king indeed see? sir you you that's put your finger on it that it in fact this is the this is you might say the revolution itself because what we see here is a exactly. paradigm shift um, and it's a banker's shift. So if you look before the revolution, the emphasis was always on quality. What is the quality? It doesn't matter if you're a million people or one person. What is the quality of the thing? It's a Christian idea. Christ was about quality. Then after the revolution, you see quantity. Everything is numbers, people, statistics, levee en masse, for example. It doesn't matter. It's oh, yeah. race, more people, more people, numbers, money. And Can I you say a few words about levee en masse? You do, do your American friends understand the word levee en masse? They don't know what it is? We will, how would you say it in English? It would be a, um, everybody fights or everybody rises. It's well, like, they, they, this, is, this is something we've talked about before, but it's true that before the French Revolution, never had we such battalions composed of thousands, millions of people almost fighting because during the old regime, uh, there would be some battles on a battleground, okay, but... On a battleground. Of, let's Wait. say... 30, 20,000 uh, soldiers on both sides and fighting. And that would be decide the fate of the, um, the, the, the war. Yes. Whereas after, after the French revolutions, we had millions of pe people being enlisted. And actually, the French revolution cost something like 2 million dead. That's if you true. include Napoleon and, and his crazy uh, uh, war mongering, you know what I mean? Yes. This Never ending war mongering. And um, I, I think I, I will translate it as, it's not literal, but it's, it's apt. 
It's total war. That's what live on mass really means. It's total war. It means total destruction, total combat, total death, um, which was antithetical. This would not have happened before. People today, when they look at war, they see what terrorism, it targets civilians. It's horrible. In this period of time, there was such a thing, ladies and gentlemen, there truly was as gentlemanly warfare. There was such a thing as honor in warfare that you didn't target civilians, that you took it to a field far away from the city. There was even a certain time of day the battle would begin. You agreed on it. And it was so contained. And if people today think that war is better than it was then, then they truly have been brainwashed by the revolution. They truly have. Brainwashed, yes, you're right. And you see, this is one of the reasons why the Vendéens, you know, in the Vendée area, they decided not uh, to accept the new regime because uh, uh, they didn't want, they were enlisted and uh, they didn't want to fight for something they didn't understand. Yes. They were loyal to the king and to, the, to, to Christ and to the king. And they were enlisted and they were supposed to go and fight in Germany or any other places. They wanted to stay in their fields and take their harvest home. That's all they wanted. Sure. And they simply didn't want to go and fight for a Republican cause, which didn't mean anything to them. So they decided to go and talk to their... Uh, to their um, uh, aristocr local aristocrat and who didn't probably want to wage war, but it was, uh, it was the countryside people who went to see their the future chiefs, you know, and told that these aristocrats who had been fighting the American war, by the way, some of them, and they said, please help us. We don't want to go and uh, uh, defend the Republic uh, at the border. So, so you see, it's a, as you very rightly said, I think it's a paradigm shift. It yes. definitely is. Things, are, things will never be the same, you see. And so, sir I'm going to say something very briefly, but it's going to be extremely controversial. But it must be said because it's the truth, I believe. The idea that humans, can, that people can love a country, I believe, is insane. We can love our family. We can love our children. We can love our wife. We can love our husband. We can love a king because he's a human. We can love God. But we cannot put a feeling of love on something as abstract as a nation state. It's not meant to be loved. It's meant to be dwelled in. And this idea is that we love our country. How can you love that? It's You love what? You love the system. You love the train system. But love is a human emotion. It's between humans. It, we say we could love pets, but it's only because of the human qualities pets have. Yes, I maintain right. that this love we have for a country is not love. It's a, it's a kind of hate. And so I know it's going to be controversial, but it's a part of that paradigm shift. I believe because before the revolution, there was no mention about we love our country. Follow Marianne over the barricades. Uh, follow yes, Uncle, yes. Uncle Sam. Yes. This was a creation of the revolutionaries and a yes, monster. This is true. And actually, there's a book which has been written in France not long ago by a very famous French royalist uh, um, historian about yes. la patrie, la patrie, which means the fatherland. Yeah. And he, he has written a whole book about 200 pages on that particular topic. So I'm sure you're very right when you say what you have said, because yeah. it's a new concept again, because uh, you are devoted to your country in the sense you belong to, to a place, okay? You, yeah. lo you love the countryside around you yes. but the, the, the notion of the fatherland you know the way the republicans exactly. uh, coined that, that particular concept is something totally different you see and exactly. people would die you know with the the revolutionaries would say well, you have to fight and die for the for the fatherland but it was a very ideological philosophical uh, concept which was not grounded in the reality of the lives of people were living in the countryside like exactly. all 
Just like the social contract. It's, it's, some, it's alien. It's also, I'm going to go out and say it. It's from hell. Well, like the social contract that uh, was designed by Rousseau, who was one of the f father, one of the um, engineer with Voltaire of the French Revolution. You see, the, 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 the two, these two guys are buried in the, their um, remains are uh, kept in the Pantheon, which is also an atheistic uh, <laughs> monument. Well, in a way, it's not atheistic. It's, it's, in a way, it's not atheistic, right? It's creating, it's creating a new theology. And oh, yes, you're right. oh, you're so right, because yes. this is also theology. It's oh, yes, I do agree with that, you, you completely. See, isn't it funny how the atheists, when they become so-called atheists, when they start practicing, they don't just sit quietly and ponder things. They build a church. They build something, they build something that's against God. And that brings me, I know this is going to be controversial, but it'll be electrifying because it's the truth. I truly believe. And we, there was a, a American revolutionary, or at least they say there was, this fellow who said, I forget his name at the moment, but he said, my only regret is that I have but one life to give for my country. You see, when he said that, implied in that is that he is not a Christian. He's not dying for Christ. He's not living for Christ. He's not doing anything. He's living entirely for the state. Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirty and gritty. Bend down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk harder than a match here. Everything is, is put into place now, I think, because Necker has been dismissed, okay? Yes. And the, there's a commotion, people are worried, the bourgeois are worried, the capitalists are worried, the ruffians are ready to fight, <laughs> providing yes. they, they get their fuel, which is what happens. And uh, one of the triggering events again here, and I think uh, it's important to mention it, is that it started from the... Uh, Palais Royal, because in that place, as we've said many times, uh, the people wanted to know what was going on, and they would congregate to the Palais Royal because that's where they would find the news. Because that's and where the news was being manufactured. Yeah, well, well, exactly. That's where the news were manufactured because, in fact, lies were given to the populace who would who would who would accept accept that. So you had people like uh, we've said that already. I'm repeating myself, but Danton, and you also had Camille Desmoulins, and Camille Desmoulins was saying that. Uh, there's a great danger looming ahead because the army is surrounding the capital and they're going to invade. They're going to bombard us. So we have to protect ourselves. And the best way to protect ourselves definitely is to go and find some rifles, some guns, some weapons. You see? Yeah. So that's the idea that they were putting in the minds of the uh, people uh, going to Palais Royal. Yeah, let's kill them before that. they kill us. That's what he was saying. Let's start the killing so we're not killed. Well, yes, and he used to say, to arms, to arms, citizens. But in fact, 
there, this is the bourgeoisie which is pushing forward the ruffians who are going to kill, you know. <laughs> and uh, for the uh, and for interest, they do not even understand. You see, but that's uh, so. So that's what happened, and as a result of that, um, it, it's interesting because uh, <clears throat> all of a sudden uh, you had um, the rumor spread that Necker had been uh, had been dismissed, and also the rumor spread that the army was about to invade, uh, they are bombard, you know, that yes. they would bomb the city. So everybody was in a shock, you know, and they wanted to defend themselves. And at the same time, a, a procession started. Started from Palais Royal, they went to a museum, a wax museum, and they took two busts. One bust was that of uh, the Necker Prime Minister, and the other bust was that of the Duke of Orleans. That's that was more or less common to do that sort of thing at the time. And they would walk uh, down the avenue, the main avenues of Paris, you see. And on the bust, on the two bust, they had put some crepe veil, you know, morning veil. You know what I mean by that? Oh yes. So yeah. It was it was quite symbolic, you see. So they were parading these two busts. A whole uh, a procession was going on with the two. Can you imagine the two bus being carried and with veils on their morning veils on their on their heads? And uh, they came to Place Vendôme. That, well, it, of course, uh, you have to know Paris to understand. But that is, but the Place Vendôme is a very, very beautiful place. One of the most beautiful places in uh, or, or courtyard in uh, Paris, if I may say. And uh, there they met. The equivalent of like an Italian piazza, like it's a square. It's very special because you have in the middle of that place you have an obelisk uh, which was brought back by Napoleon, I think. But it's such a beautiful uh, Louis the Fourteenth uh, facades, and it's such a magnificent. Oh. Place. Anyway, they went through that particular um, particular courtyard, and uh, they started having problems because the Prince of Lombesque was already there with his own regiment of uh, German soldiers. You see, and they marched, uh, and they started charging on the on the uh, procession so there were there was a first skirmish but then they were they moved on they moved on and uh, there was another skirmish in the so-called uh, place louis XV, which was uh, which is now called la place de la concorde yes. which in fact uh, we, you know the square this is a beautiful square again and there unfortunately for some reason one of the guy was carrying the um, the one of the two busts, the bust fell, he wanted to pick it up, and then all of a sudden the, prink, the prince, the, Lom, the prince of Lombesque, was the head of that particular uh, regiment, uh, by, apparently uh, cut the, the knee uh, with, his, uh, open, with his sword of the yes. gentleman. So immediately that guy was brought back to the Palais Royal and news started to be carried, away, carried that uh, the, uh, the, the, the soldiers were fighting and uh, that they would be coming and invading all the streets and, uh, you know, and uh, so you know, that created a new fear for the population. Indeed, so again, I always thought that that event myself was a, it was, it was a, it was fake news. For example, I, the Prince of Lombesque, it never added up to me because the prince, it was like riot police. They were mounted police, the equivalent, although they were hussars, they were a mounted regiment. But the idea that the prince would be out riding around front, waving his sword, um, it seems to me that I think, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the Duke of Orléans gave the fellow a good cut on the leg and said, oh no, look what the prince could well did. Have been the case. Could well have been the case, but the, idea, the important idea here is to spread rumors yes. so that the populace will react. And, fear. and that's what, exactly what they did, and it worked, you see. So the, the problem is that... Uh, 
although the populace was told that the the soldiers were about to march on them the truth was totally different because there's a guy here who was the field commander so it's a very important person and his name is Bezenval so he was he was commanding all the soldiers and he was expecting orders from his minister for for defense or minister for the army and, uh, and unfortunately the uh, the orders never came and actually the only orders that the uh, commander the field commander had been given was to protect the invalids to protect the stock exchange and some other places as the well exchange, yes. so in other words in yeah absolutely so in other words uh, the the on the side uh, on the part of the army there was no uh, need or there was no will uh, to uh, to fight and to march on the populace, but the populace was told that they were going to f to to kill them. You see, so there's a misunderstanding, which was definitely, you know, what okay, I mean. I understand the soldier's perspective now. You're told as a soldier, whatever your sympathy, wherever your sympathies might be. All right, now you're going to be here, soldier. Don't attack them if they come, but you need to stay in front of this building. And you say, "Whoa, you mean I can't shoot them if they're coming at me?" No, no, no. You just stand here and protect your. You could see why the soldiers weren't eager to fight. They had no. Their orders were. How can you tell a soldier just well, don't attack? The problem don't. is that the orders were not very precise. You mm. see, and uh, it's in interesting to have a look at the career of the of the field commander Bezenval because uh, he he was uh, really um, not willing to fight. I think, and uh, his his boss didn't tell him to fight either. So that is a, there's a there's something of a mystery. Why didn't they fight? Yes. And it, the interesting thing here is that after that, after that particular episode where he renounced fighting, and actually the Bezenval, who was supposed to fight in a certain sense to defend himself, decided to retreat. Or maybe he was planning a counterattack later. And apparently, from what I've read, he wanted on the 12th of July, he wanted to gather all his troops to have them cross the Seine and attack the populace a bit later. But when he was ready to attack the populace, it was already 10 p.m. and it was no longer possible to attack. So he didn't attack and he retreated to the Champ de Mars, which is a place located, if you look at the map, if you imagine a map of the city of Paris, that would be on the western side. But let's say four or five kilometers away from the Bastille already, you see. So yeah. he was very far away, you see. And th there's been uh, a mystery about his behavior. And the strange and uh, strange thing about him is that after that, uh, the when the revolutionaries were able to to grab power they sued him and they imprisoned him twice because they said that he wanted to kill all the revolutionaries although he didn't kill anybody really yes. and uh, he was saved twice by Necker who was a fellow Swiss oh, woman. oh surprise yes yeah surprise surprise twice he was imprisoned and twice he was saved by Necker who managed to take him out of prison and the funny thing as well about that guy and he says at the end of his memoirs that when he was imprisoned um, he was not imprisoned at the Bastille of course but he was imprisoned in Le Châtelet precisely the place which is uh, in right in the center in front of Notre Dame almost where the justice uh, the Ministry of Justice is located yes. and Le Châtelet was a very very 
dangerous and uh, horrible prison, suddenly much worse than La Bastille. Yes. That's where the revolutionaries would Im imprison uh, all the major head of, uh, well, the Marie Antoinette was there and uh, they were all there. You see all the aristocrats, that were, it's, it's terrible. And uh, the, the, the thing I wanted to say is that he was imprisoned and one of, the, of his mates was Favras. And I don't know whether you remember, but we talked about that uh, uh, aristocrat. The Favras's man. Exactly. Right. Well, he yeah. was the agent for the future with the A-teams. Okay. So that's, so that's a, an interesting thing to consider or to ponder because the attitude of the army in that particular episode is not glorious, honestly. Well, All right. On the one, unintelligible. I, and I think there is... Unintelligible. There are, well, on the one I, hand, you will, this is something you will find as well with Delaunay, who's the governor of the Bastille prison. He was caught between the devil and the heart, you know, the, yeah. and the deep sea in a certain yes. sense. Because on the one hand, these guys wanted to uh, follow the um, attitude of the, the king's orders, which was uh, no blood, don't spill blood. And as well, this is, uh, in a certain sense, it's also a good policy, because by not responding... He was, I think the king, I don't know whether he thought about that, but I think that was good, a good way, possibly, of preventing civil war. And this is one of the reasons why the soldiers didn't want to, to fire at the uh, populists, because that would have been a civil war as well. So on the one hand, the, these, uh, this soldier, uh, and as well as Delaunay, Delaunay was not a soldier, by the way. He was a, a warden. He was a, a major warden, but he was not a soldier as such. Uh, and so he was a governor of the, the Bastille. So these, on the one hand, as I'm telling you, you have this order of the king not to spill blood, which is quite understandable and reasonable in a certain way, but it, it, of course it conveys its own problems as well. And on the other hand, to not to follow the king's orders and to fight and be violent, you see, and uh, that means that you are going against the king's orders. So he said, "Is it an impossible situation?" But then again, we're looking at this from the 21st century, I think. And of course, King Louis had no idea there was a revolution. He thought, "Oh, is it just a riot? We don't want to kill people. It's just exactly. starting." Apparently, you know, and Besenval as well in his memoir says that he says that the king was not at all. Uh, capable of understanding the situation because nobody was telling him the truth. And yeah. he was only told a few fragments, bits and pieces about what was going on. And you know what he, when he wrote, and it's something which has always been reproached with the king, when he wrote in his personal diary for the 14th of July, he wrote the word rien, which in yeah. French means nothing, yeah. as if nothing had happened. Well, he was referring to his hunting. Uh, yes, it was a hunting journal. He didn't catch any game that day. Exactly. This is what it is. So, again, Bezenval is a very strange character, but he's boss as well. I mean, the, the Prince of Bretagne, who was the main head of the army, didn't provide the right uh, advice. So he didn't know what to do. And there is something sure that doesn't add up about this from a military position, although I'm not a, a huge expert on the geography of Paris, but he abandoned all the defensible positions. Now, you could have, yeah, and you could, and it withdrew to the, like the Champ de Mars, which is basically indefensible. It's an open field. Oh, and it's I, an open field. Yeah, totally. I, yeah, it's it, no military man of any sense. And 
he could have, I, like Napoleon said, one or two cannon shells, a width of great shot would have been enough to end the whole thing at the beginning. That is true, that is true, but then uh, uh, we could also wonder whether this uh, Bezenval had uh, any, uh, well, uh, balls, if I may say, very rude. <laughs> That's but I true. don't think that is the, the case. I think that he was following the orders and the orders were not sufficiently precise. He said he, that the orders were not coming, Let's which could have been the truth. And also, ah, there's nothing, something else to add to this particular yes. quandary. It's the fact that he was not quite sure of his own troops because there were so many deserters uh, in the army at the time. There were so much... Armed, sir? I mean, were they, did they have powder? Did the troops have powder at this time, or were they just... Yes, they had powder. Yes, okay. they, well, on the side of the troops, they had the powder, they had everything. The okay. problem they had is that there were so many deserters, there was a whole regiment, and it's true that um, when you look at things uh, from a perspective, you see that five out of the six regiments that were engaged in that particular episode deserted more or less or were contaminated with Freemasons and didn't fight and nobody wanted to fight against the French uh, population you see so it was very difficult to bring back uh, well the uh, peace peace because of that if I may offer an analogy though I, I'm thinking of the 1905 event at Russia Bloody Sunday and I see parallels because in this event the people started marching as they did in Russia the difference was the Russian soldiers at the Winter Palace they it didn't they, it wasn't intentional but somehow when the mob approached them they opened fire on the crowd yeah. now to me yeah. this makes yeah. sense in a way it's what a scared soldier would do when you have a mob coming before you you'd fire now they do the opposite in the case that's why it's so unintelligible to me nothing oh, about it makes sense exactly because if you remember we talked about the réveillon episode yes. and during that yes. episode they crushed the riot yes the day, there were 300 dead Yes. Because the, 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 not the police, but the army intervened and they crushed... Uh, uh, the Royal Cravat, correct? The, yeah, the, yeah right. they crushed the rioters. But in, but in this instance, they did not. So it's really a mystery why they didn't... Night is coming in, closing in, it's 10 or 11 p.m. And now you start having riots all over the place in Paris because the, the troops are not protecting the citizens. So the citizens have got to barricade themselves within their houses to make sure that they are not going to be pillaged by the rioters who are free to do whatever they want. And or that's what they did. And throughout the city of Paris, it was riots and riots all over the place, you see. There were insurgents, rebels, uh, mutineers, I don't know what to say, but this yeah. is what happened, apparently. Opportunists. Opportunists, and yes. um, remember again and again that you have so many people who were poor and had nothing to do and were just... Uh, 
happy to loot if they could. And they were encouraged to do that by Camille Desmoulins and Danton and all that, these uh, particular guys, you see. So that would end the uh, 12th of July. We, are, we, are, we will be now talking about the, the 13th. Yes. On the 13th of July, I haven't got so many things to say, but uh, the, the, the populace is, is, is in a in a trance, shall I say, and they they can see that the city is not defended, so they can do whatever they want. So the 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 Hotel de Ville uh, gets frightened by that, which is quite understandable because oh, the situation oh. is out of control. So and this is why this whole of this whole the whole uh, people that became animals and this whole event not only illustrates the the falsity of the values of the revolution, it illustrates the idea that the social contract is nonsense and, if I may say, it's just crap. Because people and their natural condition are not nobles. They become predatory animals. Well, this is exactly the opposite of what Rousseau was saying, because Rousseau was saying, on the contrary, that uh, if you come back to your natural state, you're a nice and uh, uh, benevolent person. And apparently, it's just the opposite. Is so, you not? put heads on sticks. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. what you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So you see, this is the we come to the 13th of July, and the situation is extremely tense. People are, everything is un, uh, uncontrollable, shall I say? And this is why, at by I think it was 10 o'clock or something like that, people were start they were looting the place, and uh, the bells rang. You know, they they used you know when the bells in the cities were ringing like that in the morning. It was not the time for mass, it was no, only no. Because, because there was a major danger. And as a result, they, they would ring the bells, you see, and all the people would congregate, come to the uh, Hotel de Ville, the, the, uh, the city hall, and try to look for arms, actually. But there were no uh, weapons available. You see, that was the problem. Or if there were weapons, the provost who had been elected, whose name was Mr. Flessel, and we'll hear about him again and again, Mr. Flessel decided not to give any uh, weapons to the populace, you see. But on the other hand, they did two things. They elected this guy, Flessel, and they instituted what they called the Permanent Committee of the city and this is very important because there they are encroaching already on the king's uh, prerogative and remit you know yeah. by instituting this particular um, entity uh, they can say afterwards that everything which is within the remit of the the city is under their juris jurisdiction it's see? totally unintelligible again and in congress to me you have riots in the street you have people being killed and over in the city hall you have Gentlemen, I suggest we form a committee of like what? They're, it's yes. in the middle of this. That's you have what to did. That's yeah. what they did. And in order to have uh, to to have some clout, they decided to have a militia, as we said before, uh, where they enlisted something like forty-eight thousand people, and these people needed arms. So. Oh, oh, quite naturally they had to look for arms so where should they look for arms if they are not in the city hall where well, they found them in the invalide which is the place where all the ammunitions and the rifles were stored so um they literally so they stole the weapons from the hands of sick veterans there is the did. hero of the revolution they did they did so you see and this particular militia brought back order to the city on the 13th so you see on the 12th there was no order it was a total anarchy shall i say on the 13th they managed because they 
they set up this uh, permanent community com committee plus the militia. They restored order. The, so on the 13th, I would say the major event from my own perspective would be the creation of this uh, executive committee or permanent committee, which is going to defy the king's executive power. So that would be the main thing to consider. And also, apparently, from what I've read, this is the time where, when the Duke's uh, clique decided to draw, draw up the plan to attack the Bastille, you see. They, so what they did for that, they had to find some good uh, motion so that the people would be um, ready to fight again. So they, again and again, they found, you know, they, they would have some mob orators who would be coming around and telling people that they were going, the population would be bombed by the, the army and that was enough to set them in motion again, you see. And I think that's what they did more or less. So on the 13th, we can say that that's more or less what happened. So the rumors were very effective because we, if we come now to the, four, to the 14th of July, ever since 7 o'clock, I think they went, the mob went to the Invalide yes. uh, place and they snatched all the, the weapons, you see. And then uh, the problem they found there is that um, the weapons were available, but the, the powder was not available. They also got two cannons, didn't they, from the, the King of Siam gave to France? Uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It was actually. It, it was not two cannons. I think it was five. Five cannons. They they managed to get uh, five cannons, and uh, we we'll, we will see that these cannons will be brought to the Bastille afterwards, which was all a, a psychological warfare. You know, yeah, absolutely. It's a psychological warfare because honestly, five cannons uh, they couldn't do very much. First, they didn't know how to work them. Uh, secondly, uh, within the fortress, you had eighteen. Well, you had fifteen cannons. Yes, and I real think there cannons. were three ceremonial things. Yeah, real cannons, very very strong cannons. Yes. And you had three just behind the draw, drawing bridge, the drawbridge. You see, so if they had opened, they could have opened. Well, they opened the drawbridge, but behind there were also cannons that could have repelled any uh, aggression but the thing is it was psychological as well and uh, this played also a very important part you see yeah it, indeed everything was organized to a lethal degree every step of the way you don't just raise a militia and have it effectively done in a day no army no country in the world has been able to do that it must have been planned out to a nicety it was planned out Other, to yes otherwise it's not possible i yes. totally agree with you you see now if we come now if we before we discuss the first uh, de deputation because you know um, people wanted to get the powder and they knew that the powder was in, within the inside the bastille so they wanted yes. to go there so they sent a deputation for that but what happened is that uh, uh, if we consider the uh, the prison itself, it was totally unprepared, and this is also something which we cannot understand, because Bezenval, this guy we've talked about a minute, minutes ago, went apparently to the um, to the Bastille about um, a week or, or so before. Yes, and we have to remember that there were reinforcements that had been sent at the uh, request of Bezenval to the Bastille and there were 33 Swiss guards which, who had been sent there. And, but the uh, Delaunay governor, the governor, uh, was a very, certainly a very nice man. He, he, yes. he actually had been born in the, in the place. Because it's, it's a very strange a, life he had, the poor man. It's, it's sad in, in so many ways. 
Well, he, he was he was a, a perfect gentleman, wasn't yes. he? He was he a was. perfect gentleman, and he was taken in by the ruffians. Yes, absolutely. It's as simple as that, from my point of view. And uh, so this guy uh, was totally unprepared, and also he was frightened. Uh, I'm sure he was very much frightened, because the, he knew the insurrection was coming. He should have been preparing more, but probably didn't believe. He was frightened that it, the uh, the insurrection should occur. What happened is that he was not very well prepared, and with within the prison itself there must have been something like 100 persons or soldiers now including as well you know there were not only soldiers you had the uh, you know the, you could have the, aides, the people who clean yeah, all the staff yeah people are doing plenty of things like uh, you also had a, a contingent of invalids what sick veterans. These was sick veterans, absolutely. So these guys were not very uh, helpful, were they? No. So you only had you only had uh, the thirty-three uh, the Swiss guards who were quite uh, able-bodied men, but except for that, uh, there, that that was and there was really nothing. Uh, you know, it was not seriously uh, protected. Although the fortress in itself uh, was extremely powerful and uh, not not certainly not easy to be taken but uh, it was it was ill prepared for any insurrection and it, as soon as the insurrection took place he was frightened to death now it was if, a castle indeed but i imagine that the enemy had been setting it well they had it was right in their midst it it, it had a it had a force of hate coming against it that was heretofore in the world not seen it was exactly. it was going to be targeted with the equivalent of a psychological nuclear bomb and besides, you know, the, the, the crowd which came uh, to the entrance of the La Bastille, actually the Bastille couldn't uh, be uh, entered like that because you had the Bastille itself, the, the prison, you know, with the eight, um, the eight uh, dungeons or towers, towers. but then it was surrounded by other uh, protection uh, uh, battlements, you know, uh, so there were at three drawbridges before you can come to the Bastille itself, you see. So there, there was, uh, there was the, what they called the, governor, the governor's uh, courtyard. You had um, other places as well. So you had to go through three steps before you could come to the Bastille itself. And yes. from the Bastille, you could, you could see everything going on. If you were on top of the Bastille, you could see everything. And with, the, with your cannons you pointed at the crowd, they, they could have really killed uh, so many people if they really wanted to. But they didn't want to kill anybody, you see. So, so this is something else. So um, anyway, the, the crowd, which was a motley crowd, it has to be said as well, because you had apparently Marat, you know, Marat, said oh, that there were plenty yeah. of Germans in that populace, you see. Not oh, only yeah, they come out from the sewers, I guess, to help out. Exactly, you see, and there were Germans and there were people from Marseille and people uh, from the provinces and people who had nothing to do but to loot. So they were very happy to come and possibly they'd been paid to do that, you see. Oh, yes, and uh, that was a good job for them, you know, for the day. And, uh, you know, they were all uh, enthusiastic about taking the Bastille and, and nobody thought that they could be um, arrested. In now, I believe... They were bloodthirsty, sir, because did, now between the the sack or the occupation of the Hotel de Ville and the Marchand de Bastille, they killed the provost, didn't they? It, like a, They lynched him and hung him up, or I believe? Well, they did, actually, yeah. yes, absolutely. So the crowd had been given some blood. They, they had their appetite for blood whetted. There were people killed, out, totally outside the realm of any kind of law, just dragged outside and killed. 
But Flessel was killed a bit later. He was not killed uh, actually uh, before the storming, but after ah. the storming. He was killed afterwards. You see. So there had been no blood before the best. He was killed. Apparently, he was killed because he refused to give the weapons to the crowd. Okay. So he was killed because of that. Like the Delaunay, unfortunately, unfortunately, was killed against the orders given or the against the the, the words uh, provided by the emissary. Yeah. Because yeah. one of the emissaries said, "Okay, you you uh, decide to surrender." So you will come, I will bring you to the Hotel de Ville, but you will be protected. But the crowd didn't think that way, and they killed him, you know. And, they took uh, him apart. They took him apart. And he told this to the Marquis over lunch that the Marquis gave him, didn't he? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there were plenty of deputation. There was a first deputation in the morning by 10 o'clock. They came and they wanted the powder. They wanted the, the, <clears throat> the Bastille to be open so that they could get the ammunitions. And of course, the Delaunay didn't want to, to accept that. Three, three persons from the Hotel de Ville were sent uh, to the Bastille to negotiate with the uh, Delaunay governor, and they told the, the governor that the cannons was a real was a real threat for the population, and they wanted the Delaunay to remove the cannons. First, he refused. Now the conversation lasted a long time because it was about ten o'clock, and he said the governor said to these gentlemen. I'm just going to have, have my breakfast. Do you want to join me? And they joined him. And they stayed for quite a long while. And as a result, the populace outside grew impatient. So much so that they decided to send a second emissary and uh, a, se a second deputation, shall I say. Yes. And among these deputations, you had a guy called La Rosière, who was himself a former prisoner in that prison. So he knew it well. It's quite uh, interesting. Yes. And uh, De La Rosière, so he was sent there, and when he came, he wanted to, he talked to the, um, to the governor again, and he said, please, uh, remove your cannons, and there the, the negotiations started to, to, to progress, and okay, the governor said, okay, we're not going to remove the cannons completely, but we will remove them from the embrasure, you know the word embrasure? Yeah, it's like the, the firing place. The exactly, the firing place. So they decided to remove them a little bit. And this is when <clears throat> the governor, along with the De La Rosière and his dep the, uh, two other guys, I think, they went up the, uh, to the place where there were cannons. And for the first time, the uh, governor was able to see the huge crowd which was congregated around the Bastille. And that's where he got frightened.
the crowd has, was extremely impatient because they thought that it, uh, the negotiations uh, were too long and they, they were adamant they wanted the place uh, taken uh, over by the populace, you see. So there was this particular uh, confusion going on and Delaunay was caught, as I've told you, between the devil and the deep sea because either he would, he would uh, shoot and fire at the populace or he would surrender. And um, that was not a very good uh, proposal. He didn't know what to do, you see. He and in the meantime... He thought of this. It never even occurred to him that such a thing was possible, is what he saw that day. So. No, he never... That, I think that must have been his worst dream coming yes. true, you see. And in the meantime, because the populace grew restless, and you have to remember that around... that something I didn't say, but around the Bastille, you had a moat, which was extre extremely deep. Huh? Yes. Something six or seven, eight meters deep. So, so the guys who wanted to cross just uh, uh, were, um, you know, engulfed and they, they, they drowned themselves. Yeah. So anyway, they were around the Bastille, you had shops. And these shops were there because they were making business with the Bastille, of course. Huh? Because yeah. the Bastille was also a living uh, organism, so to speak. And they, they were in normal times. Uh, the, the prisoners were high-ranking prisoners, you see, most of them. So there was, there was, there was a little change the in the merchants. Inmates. Yeah, gift shops for the rich inmates of the Bastille. Exactly. So uh, two guys managed to, to climb on top of the roof of the shops, and for some reason, really, they, were, they managed to saw, to cut the chains of the drawbridge, and all of a sudden, the drawbridge fell. And by, when the drawbridge fell, it crushed one person underneath. Yeah, like a bug. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and so the, what, happened, what happened as a result is that the crowd decided to engulf the place, you know, and so they came, not in the Bastille, of course, but close to the Bastille in the governor's courtyard. Yes. And that's where the governor and mainly his main um, Swiss Guard commander, whose name is De Flu, they decided to react, and that's where they shot, you know, they decided to... Uh, to shoot at the mob, and there were killings as a result of that. So you can see that was really pandemonium going on, and um, nobody exactly knew what to do. And the I always, when I have read of accounts of this, I always imagined that it was De Flew, not the governor who said he De Flew was a real soldier, as were all of the he Swiss. Was a real soldier. He was the real one. Yes. Yeah, and I, I have a feeling he said, "We're not going to die for the mob." And uh, that's it. That's it. He was a very brave man, but you know, it's a very, very, the, uh, history is very ironic, you see, because of all those, uh, you had three, within the Bastille, you had three categories of persons. You had the, the poor, uh, sick veterans, you see, you had the soldiers uh, with the governor, and you had, well, the Swiss guards, the invalids and the governor, okay, and the staff. And the only ones who managed to, 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 to save their lives were the Swiss guards and the flu. The flu. Yes. It's it quite ironic in a certain sense because he was the one who was ready to shoot at the populace and he managed to escape. Whereas go the governor wanted to be quite nice with the populace got killed. And his aide-de-camp, uh, Delhomme, another one who was very nice, and actually that guy, Delhomme, uh, was, uh, was very much appreciated by the veterans because he was helping them all the time. He got killed as well when they got out of the Bastille. And, uh, and the veterans, poor veterans, you know, they were 
they were uh, arrested, they were chained, they, they put chains on, they would be paraded, and they would even be killed sometimes, you see, these yeah. veterans. It's, it's a shame, but it's, it shows the cruelty that was uh, uh, going on, you know? It's, it's so true, and the, I have such admiration for the Swiss, um, because at every turn, they, they were the most loyal, conceivable soldiers, and even when the Tuileries was sacked by that insane mob again, a few years from what we're discussing, the Swiss, I believe, could have taken the entire city if they had the ammunition to have done it, and if the king had said, do what you need to do. But it, yeah, he, but, uh, but, uh, again, uh, yeah, the, what you are mentioning is absolutely true, but there's uh, some confusion about what the king actually wrote down. Yes, and, that's true. Know? That's absolutely correct. No one knows. But uh, I but just have an admiration of the Swiss. They, they, are truly, they were truly the, the best sort of loyal soldiers you could ask for. So this is it, yeah. So as a result of that, confusion, pandemonium, nobody knew exactly what to do. There was a, some people got killed, and so the, the mob retreated. Now, this was considered as a form of treachery on the part of the uh, governor. And, so the, and as a result, one, um, some guys went back to the Hotel de Ville to tell Flessel and the uh, elected representative that the situation was extremely worrying because it was, we could not negotiate with, su with such a tra tra uh, traitor, shall oh. I say. Okay? So they decided to bring another um, uh, deputation here, but then they would come with the National Guards and yes. with cannons that they take at the Invalids. And that changed the whole situation altogether, you see, because when they came, there was one guy who was uh, really, uh, apparently, quite a nice gentleman who decided to march uh, uh, at the head of, the, uh, of this new uh, regiment, so to speak. His name was Hula, Hulin. And this guy play, played an important part because, again, this one came uh, with the regiment who heard the news about the uh, fighting at La Bastille. And uh, he, was, uh, he happened to be... Uh, a laundry manager, by the way, and he happened to be uh, in the Hotel de Ville and he heard the news and he wanted to do something. He, he, he thought that the situation couldn't go on like that, so he wanted to do something. To take with him the National Guards, uh, the, the French Guards, the French Guards, they are called, and also five cannons, you see. You see? So that changed the whole situation in a certain sense. Mm. So he went to La Bastille, he arrived at La Bastille, and when he arrived, there was pandemonium, as they were saying, and they, the, some of the uh, rioters had this idea that they wanted to set fire to the governor's house. So they had taken some wagon loads of, uh, of straw, and they'd put them on fire, and they were going to um, put fire, you know, to set the governor's house on fire. And all, uh, all of a sudden, you know, it was going to take place. And Jula saw that, and with some other emissaries, they stopped that. But at the same time, the, the, the rioters had uh, noticed that there was a little girl called, called Mademoiselle or Miss uh, Monsigny, and they'd mistakenly taken her for the daughter of the governor. And so they took that little girl and they said, we're going to burn her on the pyre, you know, we're My going God. to burn her. So uh, from the uh, towers, uh, the soldiers could see that particular uh, situation. And it happened that it was one of the, uh, so one of the uh, governor's uh, 
close, uh, close, uh, not friends, but I'm not finding the right word, close, uh, uh, not associates, but one of the uh, soldiers anyway, uh, he saw that it was his daughter. So he decided to go and fetch her. And he was killed in the process himself. You know, when he came down and he tried to grab her, he was killed. But the, finally, that little daughter, and, it, and it's reported in the, uh, the accounts of the time, she was saved, but her father was killed while, while trying to save her, you know. And that's a very sad episode. So, Wasn't all this burning material, or the burning questions, you might say, all of these, um, whoever was prompting all the fire burning, wasn't it Santerre? At this time, it would come along that creature. Well, he was in that. Yeah, he was. He was there. I'm not uh, capable of providing much information about him. We've already talked about that guy. He was one of those uh, persons who had no feelings, and they would and he would cut the heads of anybody. Yeah, a butcher. And um, then he was part of that mob. Yes, you're right. Well, there were there were a number of uh, guys like that. There would, of course, there was uh, others, but he, Santerre was there. You're absolutely right. Yes. So. Anyway, the uh, situation was uh, was uh, quite confused, but Hula decided to try and talk to the um, governor. And that's important because the governor didn't know what to do, and he had written a note which he had passed to the populace, according to which he was going to blow the, all, the whole place up because they had so much powder that if the populace didn't want to uh, surrender or stop advancing, he would blow the whole prison up, you see? And he probably could have done that. But he was uh, talked uh, over not to do it. Finally, he didn't do it. And after that, uh, following negotiations, well, the governor decided to surrender, uh, something which the, the Swiss uh, flu didn't want. But that's what happened, you see? And... Uh, the governor was taken from the prison, uh, from La Bastille, and uh, with the, the, the Swiss guards and the invalids, as I've t told you. And unfortunately, when they arrived at the um, Hotel de Ville, uh, they were killed. Now, they were killed because the crowd just wanted to take revenge. Indeed, they, and they anything else. just if you could explain, when, when these negotiations were so, on the one hand, they were so, they're, Farcical. On the other hand, they're so deeply tragic. The governor, who was probably out of his mind at this time, holding a torch in his hand in front of the powder, waving the torch around now and then, I'll do it, I'll burn it, I'll blow it all up. And they say, no, no, yes, governor, yes. okay. Yes. It, was, it was a farce. And by the time they did kill him, if memory serves, he, they had so badly abused him, he said, just kill me, just get it done, just finally kill yes, me. He said, you're absolutely right, this is something he said. He said that he, he had enough, and it was better to kill him straight away, you know. And that's what they did anyway. And I think it was a butcher uh, who oh did the job. God. The butcher was very much to cutting pieces of meat, chopped his head off, you see. And then afterwards, they... First day, I don't know whether he was hanged, but uh, anyway, his head was chopped off and put on a pike afterwards and carried away. And um, same fate for some of his other, they had the same fates, unfortunately. The irony of this little story is that the Swiss guard, who was very much against uh, surrendering, managed to save his life with some Thank other God. Swiss guards. Yes. Amen for him. Huh? Yeah. But that's more or less what I could tell you about the uh, Bastille event itself. I, I think that on the whole, 
in itself, it's not such an important event, although it was symbolically uh, a change uh, of regime. Yes. But you know, when we talk about the 14th of July, today we have the National Feast Day, the Bastille Day. It's a farce. It's really a farce because in, I think it was in 1880 that some socialist uh, member of the parliament decided to, or the government at the time, they decided to have the Bastille Day as the National Feast Day. But they only they wrote they issued a decree which was one uh, one sentence long only, and they tried to put uh, as little words as they could mm. because they knew that it would divide the country. You see, because when you when you look at things in perspective again, when the mob went to La Bastille, what were they, were they chanting? They were not chanting uh, "Long live the Republic." We were still under a kingdom. We still had a king, and they said, "To la Bastille and vive le roi." They said that as well while while they were marching. It's the irony of the place. And then, if we consider the 14th of July, 1790, which is the so-called Fête de la Fédération, the Federation yeah. Feast, there again the king was present. It was the unity, the reunited kingdom again. So whenever we have the Fête de la Bastille in France, it's, it's a strange thing, thing, honestly, because the Republicans think that they are uh, you know, honoring the Republic, but in, fact, but in fact, these two dates, 14th of July, 1799, 17, and then 1790, the king was still uh, the king of France, and uh, it's an irony. Do you see the irony of this? Absolutely. To the minute, to the minute King Louis was butchered uh, or was guillotined by the uh, by the revolutionaries, the people yes. loved him. Um, so, but you see, yes. it looks to us to be so confusing and so um, so chaotic. But to the minds directing it, it both in 1789, 1790, 1880 to 2019, it's not chaotic at all. It's a perfect synchronized movement towards health. So they know that even though it may appear chaotic to people on the ground, they're moving in the right direction. As, as I mentioned just to you the other day, as Marx, that demon, said, um, you, if you have a revolution, this is not a garden party. To have an omelet, you must break some eggs. Exactly. Yeah, it's... That would be a very good conclusion for today. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's not a very philosophical conclusion, but it's a very practical uh, conclusion, shall I say. Well, so, that's a good place to end it indeed. And I would say, sir, that revolutionism, as we've discussed, it is not philosophical. In the end, it's diabolical. It's hate. It's diabolical. That's no doubt about it, yes. Whereas we, who are royalists, we have the philosophy because we're seeking to build a better world in as much as it can be built. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. So So you see, it's, uh, it's only symbolical, you know. And as I was telling you, when the Hulin, with his cannons, went to the Bastille, uh, he was playing a game of cards in a certain sense, you see, and he, w- he wanted to frighten the, the, the governor. But in fact, the governor, if he had wanted to kill them all, he was very. He could easily have done that. He could have sh- shot a number of uh, uh, cannonballs, and that would be it, and the, and the crowd would have retreated. So you see, again, on the one hand, you have very nice people, and on the other hand, you have ruffians. And then after, after, afterwards, the ruffians uh, will kill you, although they've given their words that they will not, but they did.
And then well, when you, you lie down with dogs, you will get fleas. Yeah. And, and uh, actually, you lie, you know that guy, he was yes. almost crushed by the crowd. Um, I think it was a very, very difficult journey to go from the Bastille to the Hotel de Ville. And oh. at the end, it was, he almost collapsed because he could not protect the, uh, the, the governor anymore. And that's when the governor said, oh, you, okay, kill me because I cannot uh, support it any longer. And it's true. So the crowd, but you know, the crowd was paid again. This oh, was not, these were not the real Parisian citizens. These were all the ruffians around, you see? And I think, I think a good place to end this too would be putting the, the onus and the hate and the blame where it belongs on the Philip Equality, Philip D'Egalité, because I think he had graduated from gambling with cards and now he was gambling with people's lives. And I think he was probably oh, having a lot of Excellent comparison. I fully support this comparison. It's wow. a, it, this is exactly it. In the end, though, he ran out of cards. And in the end, sir, I maintain, I maintain and I'm totally convinced that the revolution will run out of steam, that it will be exposed as the sick and fake and in totally useless system that it is, and that we will one day have true, true law and true order again. I believe it completely. Long live the king. Long live the king, indeed. God bless you, sir. Vive la Mi muerte, donde su victoria.